0: to the second half of the Water Zone, and I'm going to turn the show over to our Ag Session to use just Thank you, Rob. It's great to be on uh, on the air tonight with, um, I'm super stoked to have Mark Arax um, as our guest tonight, a uh, super-duper superstar author who um, has had a couple of home runs with his books, and... Um, we're going to dive into a couple of them, and they're about the history of California and the California agricultural um, experience. Uh, so welcome to the show, Mark Iraq
1: Thanks for having
0: me. You're very, very welcome. Um, I would like to start out by letting folks know, you know, who who you are and what you've done and what sort of accolades you've been getting recently. So give me a moment to uh, just, just read some information before we dive into our our talk here, yeah, Mark. Yeah, sure, sure enough. Yeah. yeah so, Mark, um, you're you're basically an author and a journalist, and your writings on California and the West have received all sorts of awards in literary, literary nonfiction. But you started your career in, at the LA Times and at the California Sunday Magazine. Um, <clears throat> your your book started with a memoir of your father's murder. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, and then a collection of essays about the West and then of course, the best-selling The King of California, which is where I became familiar with you about a decade ago. That won a California Award and the William feroyan Prize from Stanford University, and was named the top book of 2004 by the LA Times and San Francisco Chronicle. Your newest book, The Dreamt Land, is being hailed by critics as one of the most important books ever written about the West. Wow. That's really cool. <laughs> it was just named a finalist for the L.A. Times Nonfiction Book of the Year, and it just won the California Book Award. You hail from Fresno, and you were a top graduate of Fresno State and Columbia University. You left the L.A. Times in 2000, 2007 after a public fight over censorship of your story on the Armenian genocide, and you've taught literary nonfiction at Claremont Montana College and Fresno State University. You have three kids, and you live in suburban uh, Fresno on a on a farm. And you know, Mark, your your books are just truly masterpieces. I've I've read uh, three of them, and the praise from critics are is really unequalled. Tell me, you know, as a Tulare girl myself, tell us how a guy from Fresno rose to the pinnacle of the West literary rank, and how your personal connection to the land influenced your success. So you're from Tulare, huh? <laughs> yeah i am i' from too there, there, bully
1: <laughs> well, you just wrote my o bit up above, so thank you for doing that um no I, I think this is a perfect place to uh you know write write stories uh you're talking about a singular landscape in the uh in, in all of america the san Joaquin valley and if you you can even include the central valley so i go. Grew up in this place, and I grew dumb. I, you know, like all kids, I grew up dumb to this place. You, know, you don't know what your place is, and you know, a lot of a lot of people end up dying dumb to their place. Um, I decided, because of my father's murder, it was all happened when I was 15, that I couldn't afford to remain dumb to my place. So, um, I started as a kid going around with a fashioned tape recorder. And asking questions of my grandparents, I started with just trying to figure out who we were and how we came to this place. And our family story was pretty fascinating. They, they were Armenians um, who came from um, the Ottoman Empire, and they were all survivors of the genocide. Of the Ottoman Empire, the Turks had killed one and a half million Armenians. And my grandfathers came here, and my one grandfather, my father's father, Came in 1920 and started picking fruits and vegetables up and down the San Joaquin Valley. So, um, anyhow, I, I was just trying to figure out our family story, and I think that turned into a curiosity, and I became a journalist and then uh, turned it into magazine writing and then finally book writing. So, uh, that's count- well, how, count how it happened.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, you you can tell that you, you know, from reading your books, you can tell that you were a reporter, because they're just meticulously, uh, you know, both annotated with notes, and it's just, um, you have such a compelling style of writing, you know, you're just glued to the books. And these are not thin books. These are big, huge books. Well, that's, and... the, that's the challenge. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want
1: people dying in the middle of your book. So what you do, <laughs> is you have to bring everything to it. And so, yeah. and I think, um, you know, I, I've written books, I've written journalism from the third person, but most of my books have me as a character because I think it's a, an honest way to engage with the reader where you're declaring to the reader, listen, this is who I am. This is where I came from. These are the forces that shape me. And this is my opinion, at least at the outset of this journey. But I'm completely prepared for my opinion to change. Mm-hmm. And that's when I go out on the land. So my first book really, I've worked from kind of the middle out. My first book was about Fresno. Uh, my father started off as a farmer. Then he became groceryman. his brother. And then he, he, the grocery business went bankrupt. Uh, a big change came in. My dad came home one day I, I bought a, a nightclub, and he turned it into the hottest nightclub between L.A. and San Francisco. Wow. Before he was killed, he brought in Chuck Berry to duck walk across this little stage in Fresno. Wow. So, um, so I started in Fresno with this question of who were we, what was our journey out of genocide, what happened to my father, who killed him, and why. And we're not going to get to that. Uh, You can read that book called In My Father's Name. Then the second book, there was a flood in 1996, 1997 in California, flood. And I got a call from a colleague who said, do you know, at the LA Times, he said, do you know that Tulare Lake has come back to life? I said, Tulare Lake? He says, grab the map. So I grabbed the map, (laughs) put my finger down, I found and there it was, Tulare Lake. It was painted blue on this Rand McNally map, but it was perfectly square. It had been <laughs> engineered from a natural lake into one that had been straightjacketed by levees, canal, and upriver dams. So that became this story of what was Tulare Lake? How did it get drained dry? And how did it become the, the, the most intensive cotton patch in the world. That was the story of how the plantation south from Georgia, Mississippi, came west. They were these cotton barons chased out by the boll weevil. They decided to come to Tulare Lake and tap into its rivers, canals, ditches, slowly drain that river, that, that lake... Was where four Yokut Indian tribes lived. The women would fish that lake, mussels, clams, terrapin with their feet. It was a shallow lake because it was an inland lake. But it was also 800 square miles. It was the most dominant feature on the California map before the guys started draining the water and siphoning it off, and in all but the flood years, creating this immense cotton patch down there. They not only brought their mint juleps with them from the South, but they brought their black cotton pickers. And so I was able to delve into the whole history of how African-Americans had migrated West to follow the cotton trail. I found many of them there. The last vestiges of them, they were dying. I was able to take that same tape recorder that I taped my grandparents with and family members after my dad's murder. I took that same tape recorder and taped the story of these black Okies, I call them. Steinbeck had never written about them. And I have probably 250 to 300 hours of oral history of them. Thank goodness they're all gone now. So, so that was the second book. I worked my way out from Fresno to there. And the third book, the book of essays called West of West. And that's when I decided I was going to tackle the entire state. with these short stories, each about 10,000 words long, uh, the last short story in that book is the epilogue of my father's murder. Because after I wrote that first book, a man came forward who was part of the conspiracy. and We had a trial 32 years later. And the one wow. lone surviving gunman was, um, was uh, tried and convicted. So that last story was how that all happened. And then it was... Uh, I, I, did, I swore I wasn't going to tackle water again, but um, the drought came. About the second year in, all these reporters and magazine writers were coming to California and writing about this drought, and they, I knew they were getting things wrong. And I thought, okay, it's time to write a kind of Cadillac Desert, that, that classic book written by Mark Reisner. Um, it was, his was written in kind of a third-person uh riser didn't grow up in california i grew up in this place so i decided i'm going to write a, a new you know a new story of of what what we did to create california and i'm going to do it in the first person through my own engagement with the land and my family's engagement so that is the dream plan uh, the subtitle is chasing water and dust across california and it's really the story of you know it starts with well, it, doesn't, it doesn't start out chronologically. It's, it's kind of braided and woven, but um, it, it, it tells the story of those Indian tribes. Um, it tells the story of the Franciscans who came and took the body of the Indians, which was the first resource that was taken. And by taking the body of the Indian, we were able to start taking the rivers and moving the water. I mean, look what we did. Landmass, a thousand miles long, and we called it one state. And that's a, there's a tremendous amount of hubris involved in that act because we weren't one state. We were many different states. And yet, what we decided to do to try to make this experiment work was we were going to even out the differences in those different states of California. We were going to move the rain from where it fell to where it didn't. And we did created the most monumental uh, hydraulic system to move water of any society in the history and um, but when we started erecting it we were 10 million we're now 40 million
0: the system yeah.
1: cracking and it's into those cracks that I went
0: yeah it is interesting that this book started out you know in in the modern era of uh, Just for our listening audience, the uh, five sections of the book are called number one, Cracks in the Earth, which is from 2014 to 2016. And then you go back in time to the second segment, Fathers of Extraction, from 1769 to 1901. And then you pick up with a third section of System to the Rescue, 1901 to 1967. And then the fourth segment is Children of the Desert, 2016 to 2017, and then an epilogue, which was the fall and winter of 2017. So starting, starting you know recently, and then going all the way back, and it's just a such a monumental tome to the history of of our state and the development of it and you know, I think lots of people grow up here and don't really know much about California. It's like, you know, you kind of grew up in Fresno and didn't know much about Fresno. I grew up in Flare, didn't know much about the places around us. And, you know, you grow older and become more interested in whether it's a family issue or a work issue, and you start to delve into it. And I'm just fascinated by how the Indians had a really great handle on how to live in our state and how, you know, the Western... Settlement um, and now 40 million people has really presented us some challenges from you know wildfire and you know people living where they shouldn't be and you know we developed the West in probably the wettest period of um, our history the last 150 years and so we really thought we had more water than we did so now we have all these conflicts between ag environment and and the urban segments of our state so you know as as you um wrote this book what really inspired you to go all the way back and start from there well you (laughs) had a
1: question you know i always get it's the questions that define these books and sometimes if you're lucky you can actually answer them but at some point i'm on the land in the middle of this historic drought and the land is sinking i go out to um Place which is north of Madera, probably 45 minutes outside Fresno, a little settlement called Fairmead, and it was settled by Germans. And then African-Americans came west, and this became their promised land. And in the middle of the drought, all their wells were going dry, all the, all the little pieces of uh, suburbia or a little agriculture. And the reason why is the almond growers were coming in and around them, planting more and more acres of nuts and going deeper and deeper into the aquifer to to, to mine that water. And it was drying out their pumps. They didn't have the money to go deeper and compete with these giants of agriculture. And the promised land was withering, drying up. So this was what was happening. And and we had the infrastructure that we built, the the aqueduct that moved water 444 miles from the north to the south, up and over the mountains. so much water out of the earth that the, the soil was sinking, the ground was sinking. And then we had it. Uh, to, the canals were sinking. And it just seemed to me a kind of madness. And what was happening was in the midst of the drought, And it takes you back. And, um, you know, we had the largest concentration of natives of any place in North America. There were 300,000 natives, essentially. and They lived in kind of peace. They weren't the warring tribes of, of, of the plains uh, in the south, in the middle of America, uh, because they had plenty of resources here, plenty of food, plenty of things to do. They had no reason to really war. Now, they had their yeah. rivalry. But so I, I started with that, and, um, and I tried to write it through characters. I, I, it, so it never reads quite like history. I don't want it to read like history. I want it to read like a novel. Now, I can't read like a novel, but it's something close to that. And I'm always present. So when I go back to the past, the Indian past, the way I do that is I say, you know, um, there was this tribe called the Awanachi. They had a chief called Tanaya. And they were driven out of Yosemite, but what became Yosemite National Park, by this battalion in the 1840s and fifties. And the names are familiar to me because I went to Tanaya Junior High School. And we played football and baseball. We played against uh, Awani. We played against Wawona, Tioga, Yosemite. Well, these were all Indian names. But yep. no no one ever taught us that. All I knew is we wore a maroon you know, the Tanaya Braves we were called. And right. we wore maroon. So so we we weren't being taught our own history and the schools today still aren't being taught our own history. And it's a real shame. So at some point I have to go back and I go back for a couple hundred pages and I have friends and readers who write and say, I love the history the best and I have other people who write and say, My goodness, I almost died in the history. Uh, I couldn't, I just, I had to, you know, I had to, <laughs> I had to get the, uh, the Kindle version or, or I had to hear it on, 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 on audio to get through it. And then when you come back to the present day, then you're flying again. Okay? Well, so yeah. everybody has their opinions. So yeah. then I talk about how this system was built. The, the Central Valley Project was built out of the drought of the 1920s. The State Water Project, was built out of the floods, okay, of the 1950s, 60s. So flood and drought brought us these things. And what I show along the way is that the footprint of agriculture went from prime land to decent land to bad land because we were able to extract more and more water. First, we had the prime land where the rivers ran through it. Easy canal taking. And then the pump came along in 1920, the year my grandfather comes from Istanbul, Turkey, to here. And uh, he hears about a new Armenia in the San Joaquin Valley from his uncle who was here. They're all survivors of the genocide. They don't know what the hell is going on. <laughs> he lands, and the pump comes. That pump allows the footprint of agriculture to go from prime land to more marginal ground. still farmable. Then that ground goes dry. They want to grow even bigger. That's when the farmer meets drought and says, how do we grow bigger? We're going to have to steal ourselves a river. And so they take the lesson of L.A., the stealing of the theft of the Owens River. They decide they're going to go north to the Sacramento River and take its excess flows. And the folks up in Sacramento say, fine, we're sick and tired of the floods that we're getting from the Sacramento River. So we'll give you some of our excess. That allows the footprint to grow more. Now we've gotten to a kind of mad a gold rush of farming where we have planted a million and a half acres of almonds. And we have an almond glut right now. The price of almonds was four bucks a pan. That's now a buck fifty. We have a three billion dollar pound harvest that's just starting right now. This is 750 million more pounds than has ever been harvested. Who's going to buy all these almonds? Okay, so so we are unsustainable. So we have a new state law, and we're going to called stigma, and that is going to try to bring some sanity to this, so we can reduce that footprint, bring it back to the best land. Um, and we look and we say that the same thing has happened with suburban growth, sprawl. How is it? The 10 million of the 40 million Californians are now living in an urban wildland interface in the path of wildfire how can that be we're building in the path of wildfire even as we're, we're enduring these historic wildfires so this is my trying to reckon with this place massive extraordinary, uh, The things that were done were magical. But we've come to a place and now that climate change is hitching on to our own inherent climate change, the one that we naturally have. We're going to see havocs we've never seen before. And what does that mean for the growth of California? Where where, where are the constraints? That's what kind of drives that last
0: Yeah, in the epilogue, I love this statement. You very poignantly state that in my lifetime alone, quote, California has gone from 14 to 40 million people. Nothing will stop the houses. The wheat king begets the cattle king, and the cattle king begets the cotton king, and the cotton king begets the nut king and the pomegranate princes, quote, unquote. But those are all references to these you know, giant in agriculture that either sold the rivers or, you know, controlled just, you know, many seasons and within our state. And, you know, it struck me that so we began with the new the yoke as you um, just said the native the three hundred thousand native folks that lived here. What do you think, Mark, will be the next transformation? What what do you think it's gonna look like when the nut king and the pomegranate princes beget to something else? What, what is it going to beget to next?
1: <laughs> well, I'm the son of farmers, um, and I think the middle of California and other parts of California, um, given the soil type, the sun, the water, that if nature, God, intended a place to be something, he intended these places to be farmland. And I think the great tragedy would See the middle of California paved over in the way that Southern California has been, just too, the water is too valuable, the land's too good. And it's just, I think it's important that a nation state like California have its, produces its own food, even though it exports a great deal of it other places. It's real. It's a real economy. It's not service. It's real. And I think it's important that that land remains that way, but it needs to remain that way in a way that's sustainable. And sustainable is a phony word. I get it. What does it mean? It means whatever person who's studying it has its, his own ends wants it to mean. But it does have we, – we, we cannot be extracting water uh, to a point where um, it's not being filled back up. And so we, we have to reduce that footprint. That's going to be very difficult because you know, we're a system not just in California but in America that yeah. – that relies on growth, 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 but at some point the growth ends up becoming a cancer, and that's what we have to figure out. And, uh,
0: but that's where, but that that's where our groundwater law, the sigma that you mentioned, can ho- hopefully help us reconcile our overgrowth.
1: We're going to have to do something. So, I'm on the land with these farmers. They're so damn honest with me. You know, they don't like telling their story, but once they start telling it, they really tell it. And I'm on the farm with a guy we call the Oracle, and he's pointing out all this land. He's he's been a farmer for four generations. He said, look at all this land we've developed in the last five years. If my great-grandfather and grandfather were alive today, they'd say, how in the hell are they developing that land? That land isn't even good for cattle.
0: And
1: this is what's happened. So we're going to have to look at things, make some tough decisions. Should, should, Should California be growing a million acres of alfalfa? Right. I know I'm going to upset the farmers of Imperial and the farmers of the middle of California, the San Joaquin, where all the big mer- mega dairies are. But do we – is this water and land too valuable to have mega dairies on it so those mega dairies go elsewhere where ha- ha- cows can truly be happy? These are the questions we're going to have to answer. Now, they're identifying this overreach of agriculture and trying to get it back to something that is, is – is, doesn't require that kind of mining of the groundwater. Um, but there's going to be big wars, big fights, lawsuits. Well, the state of California have the guts, the wherewithal to come in and tell the locals, look, at that can't be farmed anymore, and we're going to have to find a way to buy that farmer out. One, one way is on the far west side of San Joaquin Valley is to retire farmland that's problematic, that has drainage issues retire some of it, and put more and more solar panels on it, and it's those solar panels that will then allow for that farmer who had to retire his land to, you know, to get a payday out of it. So this is all the extraordinary things we're dealing with now, and um, we'll see where we land. And we're doing it uh, under great pressure because uh, we're in extended drought.
0: Of it, on top of it, a pandemic and social unrest.
1: And, oh, no, yeah, we're you know. not even adding. We're just looking at nature and, and man's <laughs> thing on it. We're not even looking at what we're, we're getting from afar. Um, so this is what I try to tackle with this thing. And and um, and um, I'm weaving my own family story into it, you know. I mean, um, and I weave, I throw everything into it. I mean, I, I wrote a story once that Bruce Springsteen turned into a song. And so I'm, oh. I'm revisiting that um, because uh, you know it, it's about, it, was about, it was about the land, about farming, and methamphetamine. And so, so I'm just bringing every, I'm bringing in my grandpa. I'm bringing in moonshine, the moonshine that we make as part of our tradition out of raisins. Um, it's just all in there, hoping you know that when people are reading, it, they're, they're not not like it's a um, it's a you know, they're taking a college course or something. It it it's the storytelling keeps them engaged. Um, that's why it took me five years.
0: Yeah, well I I, um, I can't believe it that fast <laughs> because there's a lot there. There's a terrible amount of detail. And like you say, it reads like a story just as you're telling it. You sound like a storyteller. And I know that when we talked last week you were working on an audio book or
1: um oh yeah they they to uh, one of my i had to read one of my the west of west book um that that book of um stories essays i, I read that um turned it into an audio book uh, it's like the most miserable indoor job you can have. you sit there and <laughs> <laughs> hours a day it's uh and um and then you're you're thinking you know and then, and then the producer on the other end is saying, you know, can you vary your voice a little bit like so you have to inhabit these different characters, and you give them voices, and you know they're trying to turn you into a thespian or something.
0: <laughs>
1: Beyond my range. Well, yes, I'm yeah,
0: I, I, I'm sure that that's going to be a, a great listen, and I would encourage everybody to that has any interest in the state of California and where our food comes from, all those sorts of things, to. To read your books, and now, now we have the opportunity to to listen to them. And I would hope that you continue writing because you're in such a perfect position with your knowledge and your experience to, you know, help help those who are trying to figure out how to solve our challenges. Um, you know, maybe maybe your next book might be addressing what do we do next? Is, is that a uh, I think I'm gonna write a novel.
1: I got a novel next based on a real and I think I'm going to try that. I mean, I know the road of of writing is littered with uh, nonfiction writers who tried to turn into fiction writers. I've been accused of being a fiction writer all along where I'm bending the facts to a point where they're... But I think I have bent nonfiction about as far as you can um, and and keeping it factual. Um, It's really challenging. I'd like to be liberated a little bit. So if I wanted to write something, I wouldn't have to... Dig it out from the file cabinets and make sure that I have it precisely right. Um, so I'm, I'm going to try that, and it's going to be about the place and land and all that, and, and, and just a different way at it. So I'll try it and see see what happens. And I'm Still writing for California Sunday Magazine. I did a piece. I did a piece on Paradise last year. What happened? How did that? How did we plant forty thousand people on a geological chimney? Two you know uh, rivers uh, these these, this, these ravines, and right in the path of wild, how did that happen, and how did that place burn down? It was kind of an autopsy of a place
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was mm.
1: that was fun um, long piece. but this piece this book I like because I'm on the land with these characters, Stuart Resnick and Linda Resnick, you know, um, Stuart grew up in a Jewish family in New Jersey, came west at UCLA. He was a millionaire as he was going to law school and just kept getting, you know, and then he decided in the 70s that he needed some some investments that were a hedge against in, in, in inflation. And he buys farmland in the valley. And now he has he is the biggest farmer in America, 150,000 acres. And you know, the the almonds, pistachios, mandarins, cuties that now are halos uh, wine grapes, uh, you know, all of it. It's, 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 it's extraordinary to see the water use that they do. And so, you know, I persuaded him to talk and I spent a couple years getting his story down. So, uh, you know.
0: So that's what, that's what you're working on now is the Resnick story. He finally did um, agree.
1: No, the Resnick story is in, the Resnick story is is, is uh, ran called the Kingdom of Dust, and that is deeper in the book. It's uh, when you come out of the history of the of the land, The first land you land on is Stuart Resnick's
0: land. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, I I recall that. Yeah. Uh, so that's that, that's, a full, that's all that full length one.
1: Excuse me.
0: I, I recall that you wanted to do a full a full length.
1: Oh, a full length? No, I think I've done. Resnick, um, you know that that book weighs 2.2 pounds,
0: <laughs> and I think
1: it probably um, three quarters of a pound is Resnick. Uh,
0: okay, they deserve uh, it. So I mean, you know,
1: that. they they they're keeping us all alive with their palm juice. Even Ab- at least absolutely. those of us who could afford afford it for eleven bucks a bottle. Yeah.
0: Well, with the minute that we've got left, um, Mark, uh, we have to sign off at fifty-nine for NBC News. Anything else that you would like to add? Be sure to let our listening audience know how to get a hold of your books, whether they're printed or audio.
1: Yeah, they're printed. They're 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 all there the, in bookstores um, and through online purchasing. Yeah, they're all they're all around and um, and just you know, I think you could start at any one to others. Um, some are more challenging. Others, uh, but. Um, Hopefully, you know, they 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 explain this place, which is uh, really a magnificent place. But, it is. It's
0: our, it's our beloved California. Yeah,
1: no, no, no. And we're still trying to puzzle it out, figure it out. And, uh, so, yeah, that's 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 the journey. All
0: right. Well, thank, thank you so much for uh, visiting with us and appearing on the show. And to the listening audience, we'll also be available on iTunes, the Water Zone Ag Podcast, if you'd like to listen again or... Um, send this to a friend. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. And Thanks for having me. I look forward to reading your next book. And, again, I'm a big fan. Thumbs up. Everybody ought to read this book. Anybody that cares about California, or even if you don't, it's a great story.
1: Next one we're going to All set right. to Merle Haggard, okay? We're going to do it. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye.
0: All right, Mark. I'll look you up next time. I'm impressed.
1: Take care. You take care. Yes, please. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you. All right. Off to you, Rob. Well, excellent. Uh, great. I wish we could have one. And I uh, just want to tell you guys, thank you very much. And to our listeners, we'll talk to you next week. And remember, the most important thing you have to do is help keep our planet blue. Good night, everybody. Talk to you next week.